I was fascinated by those yellowed bits of cartilage, mystical and revolting at the same time, transparent and mysterious, by those shreds of clothing from some immemorial age, faded, threadbare, sometimes rolled up in a file like a faded manuscript, by those crumbled materials mingling with the fabric that was their bed, holy jetsam of a life once animal and rational, and now imprisoned in constructions of crystal or of metal that in their minuscule size mimed the boldness of stone cathedrals with towers and turrets, all seemed transformed into mineral substance as well. Is this, then, how the bodies of the saints, buried, await the resurrection of the flesh? This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to The Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. I am Friedrich Peachy. And I'm Soren Riergarn. Welcome back, listeners. We're glad you're here with us. Just a few items of business before we get started. You can reach us on social media. We are on Twitter, at The Reader's K. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Reader's Karamazov. You can shoot us an email at The Reader's Karamazov at gmail.com and you can as always find our podcast on apple podcasts on spotify or at the readers karamazov.podbean.com thank you all for uh, listening in send us any comments or questions you have we love talking about those on the air and uh, tell your friends about the show and maybe rate and review us on apple podcasts i think spotify is getting some sort of rating and review system now so you can get us there too Uh, we love to hear from you we love you, you spreading the word we're back this week with our final episode on Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, which is our anchor book for this season, season three, The Name of the Rose. We're going to be wrapping up a lot of threads today as we go through the book. First, as always, I'm going to give you a quick plot summary of days five, six, and seven uh, today. We packed in three days at the end of the week here. And so I'm going to go quickly through that, and I'm going to try to keep us up to date on the most important threads of our plot. And I will go ahead and say this since it's the end of the book. There are spoilers here. So if you are reading along with us and you haven't quite finished yet, go finish before you listen because I'm going to spoil a few things for you here. Really quickly, I want to wrap up the main plot here, which is our mystery plot, of course. We've been trying to figure out, along with William of Baskerville and Adzo of Melk, who's been committing all of these murders at the Abbey. And uh, we we get some answers this time around. They're maybe not quite what we expect. Over the course of these days, we have a a couple of more murders. We have uh, Severinus, the herbalist, who had been kind of friendly with William. He ends up dead in his herbarium. And a book that had been there that William is looking for gets stolen from, from in the herbarium. And then Malachi, the librarian of the abbey, also ends up dead. And so there's a lot of kind of building tension, what's going to happen, what's going on. By the end of uh, day six, William and Adzo have finally figured out how to break into the secret part of the library, the Finis Africae, the most secret part of the library. They end up going in there. They wind up finding out sort of who the person is behind all of this. And it turns out it was our dear friend Jorge of Burgos, the old blind monk. And the threads here are kind of complicated, but essentially the main motivation for what had been going on was that Jorge of Burgos does not want released into the world the only existing copy of Book Two of the Poetics by Aristotle, in which Aristotle treats the subject of comedy and laughter. And Jorge thinks this is going to be an awful influence on the world. He wants to get rid of laughter, essentially. And so what he's done is he has bound together the... the, the um, pages of this book with with a poisonous substance that forces people to turn the pages by licking their fingers, turning the page, then licking again, and what happens is the poison gets absorbed then into their tongue and kills them. Um, but, but let me say this about the murders, just uh, because this is kind of an important point at the end of the book. Actually, as it turns out, 
William had been thinking that there was one murderer committing all these murders to conform to the images found in the book of Revelation about the blowing of the trumpets. But in fact, what's happened is there's a series of disconnected murders that have taken place. In fact, one, the first one of Adelmo is, is in fact a suicide, not a murder at all. Um, and then these other ones have been committed by various monks in the abbey who are trying to cover their tracks for things. And Jorge's only had a very limited role here, but he has been, in fact, the one moving a lot of the action along through his conspiracy to keep this book a secret. So they confront him there uh, in the middle of the library. He's, he starts to escape from them, and then as they chase him, there's an accident. The library gets set on fire, and then it completely burns up. And in fact, the whole abbey ends up burning to the ground, a sort of cataclysmic, apocalyptic event at the end of the book. So that's, that's sort of the main thread of the mystery through. We also have the resolution of these council meetings that have not gone in the favor of William and his Franciscan brothers. Michael, their leader, is being led off to Avignon to be presumably tried and executed by the Pope for heresy. Remigio, the cellarer who had been in, involved in the, the, the heretical sects earlier in his life, gets found out. He's, he is also taken away to be tried. His friend Salvatore is also taken away, as well as the woman that Adzo had, had slept with and who's been accused of being a witch, she's also taken away. And so things are not going well overall. And in fact, we learn from old Adzo at the end of the book that after this, everything in, in Christendom basically falls apart. We end up having an anti-pope and all of these, uh, the emperor turns out, William you know, had been placing his hope in the emperor to be a beacon of reform. And in fact, the emperor is just out for his own power. And so all these things are going wrong. And Adzo, by the end of the book, as he's an old man, is writing somewhat in despair about what's going to come next. So we have a resolution in some ways to the plot, but in other ways, just a sort of an ending that's happened here. Maybe we can just start with the ending, with the mystery itself, and you all can tell me what you make of what Echo has chosen to do here, which is offer us a pretty nifty misdirection where we think we're going through and solving a mystery in an orderly fashion. And then, and as it turns out in the end, it's not really a mystery at all. It's been imposed from above by the people observing it. What do you all make of that ending? What's Echo trying to tell us? And what do you take out of it? It's a great question. And it's a difficult question because it sort of gets at what is this book about? Or what is Echo's point of view here? There's an afterword to this that's included in later editions in which he sort of talks about the structures he's exploring and how there are certain sections where he's he knows that in this person's time uh, they would be expressing things in this way and that those sections actually sort of write themselves right and there's this idea that language just sort of picks things up sometimes and just carries them and so when you're trying to make sense of that ending it's about reading and understanding and constructing meaning out of the things that you perceive. And then as William is sort of um, lamenting after everything has begun to burn down uh, because of Jorge's uh, Bane moment in the library when he, he tells them that he was born in the darkness and extinguishes the light and begins to run around, William is lamenting that he, he followed the signs that were before him and they led him to the conclusion, but it was all wrong, that everything that he had followed was wrong. And there was an order of sorts, but the signs weren't necessarily telling him what was going on beneath that, really. And the reason I, I, I look ahead to that, um, that afterward that he includes is he talks about different ways that the labyrinth is structured in that. And one of the, the ways he gets to after like the, the Minotaur labyrinth and the other labyrinth, whatever he says, is the Deleuze and Guattari rhizomatic labyrinth, which if anyone's read about the rhizome, you'd probably be like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense in Deleuze and Guattari, and it's hard to make sense of here. But I think Echo actually does make sense of it in a nice way, which is just that it's a structure that's that has order, but the order is never definitive. And whatever sense people are trying to make of this world theologically, when they think they know what it is, shifts and changes when you think you understand the signs they shift and change and as a start for the conversation we're having tonight at least that that's where i'm thinking it's such a hard question soren and a really good question because the book has so many endings to me and the sense that we in the beginning end with an old ad so and then we end somewhere with the fall of communism and then we end with you know echo writing the book and then the postscript to the book. It's interesting 
thinking about the fictive and real natures of the artifact of the book, all of those many sort of sheaves, um, which one brings us finally to some outside standpoint to look at things. It's very hard to, to know when that is. And the ending you were originally mentioning, that of Jorge of Burjos's ability to kind of play people off each other in a certain way in the Abbey, but also in some sense order events, but perhaps more force in order than find in order. It's striking me now that that is somewhat ironic with respect to every other character, including Echo himself, attempting to force an order on this thing that they find kind of already started, a narrative already started that they're intending to kind of put a a stamp of meaning on, and each one fails. So there's kind of this ironic closeness between Jorge of Burjos and Adso when he comes back later to the fragments, hoping to kind of shore something up there, and then Echo himself, like, fictively translating this manuscript later. That move keeps kind of recurring on many levels. Other than that irony, it's hard for me really to to pull out and say what exactly is, um, to zoom out all the way and say what is exactly happening there. To me, it almost feels like Echo is pulling a bit of a joke on William of Baskerville, who is, you know, obviously kind of a cruel one, but, you know, throughout the book, he has sort of set himself up, and certainly we've come to view him as this paragon of reason, somebody who is thinking at a different level than these other people. Um, in his ability to consider all possibilities in his investigative work. But even he ends up falling short because he ends up imposing these meanings rather than, you, you know, as he would sort of think I think he was doing, just letting the evidence lie and being a sort of strict empiricist in some ways and not trying to do too much interpretation. He himself ends up getting carried away in those moments. But as Adso points out, it actually works, right? It's not like it's a useless endeavor because they catch the murderer, sort of, you know, who, you know, they, they, they solve the mystery or the mysteries and they got to the right conclusion, maybe by the wrong method, but they did get there. And so Adza thinks that's something to be proud of. And it's kind of fascinating to me because in the end, William becomes a distinctly unsympathetic character, temporarily at least, because there's the wonderful moment when he's sort of locked in this game with Jorge. Adzo says he recognizes it. He says they're like competitors against each other and they're getting pleasure out of this back and forth that's going on. And then after that, William, as they're chasing him around, doesn't want to save Jorge. He wants to save the books instead. And Adzo's sort of taken aback by this. And I think Adzo's right. Like William is sort of betraying the idea of sort of human dignity being the ultimate arbiter and not books or anything like that because he thinks though this guy who i hate who he loathes he says he loathes him right i don't want to save him i want to save these books instead and so he's sort of falling short in that moment kind of betrayed by his own intellectual pride um in that very moment i think that's an interesting thing that that echo's doing i think sort of self-knowingly because as you sort of said carl i think this is a good point like there's a sense in which echo does resemble jorge of burgos but there's also, I mean, many ways in which he seems to resemble William of Baskerville. And, of course, William of Baskerville of and, and Jorge of Borcos resemble each other. So that's a really fascinating sort of th- series of threads running through this is the sense that it's very easy to become that which you despise. There's a wonderful moment in the postscript where Echo's talking about the trial scene. And he says, like, I wrote about William talking about haste being this bad thing. And then mm-hmm. Bernard of Gui also says something about haste being bad. And people are like, what are you doing here? Are you drawing this parallel between them? And he said, oh, actually, like, I inserted this thing from William afterwards, and I just forgot that Bernard was going to say this exactly the same thing, like, a page later. And so it ends up creating this strong parallel between them. And so that's a wonderful moment of Echo himself, like, being betrayed by his writing and creating this sense of congruity between William, who's supposedly our protagonist, and Bernard of Gouy, who's maybe, I think, maybe even the main antagonist of the book. He's such an unlikable character. And then also Jorge, who's, like, the lesser antagonist of the book. All three of them are in this same world, and they're they're sort of weird, distorted mirror images of each other. And I think Echo sees himself in them as well as he's writing. 
there are moments where William is like sort of drawn into Bernard's inquisition, right? Where he's reluctant to participate and is very diplomatic about how he participates and yet he participates. Hmm. And those are moments where you're, like, you're totally right that Echo or Adso is recognizing that William's operating in a world of political relations and complicit in some of them that Adso's not because Adso's, he's too, I don't know, he's closer to the simple in some ways than to, to the, the circles of power. But to defend William, not fully, but briefly in that moment, his rationale for not going after Jorge is that he says he's eaten all these pages and he's going to die anyway, right? And so then it's about, like you're saying though, but I think you're right, Soren, it's about his vow, right? Like it's a brother and he should be giving him comfort or extreme unction or whatever because he, he knows he's going to die. But he just is like, no, we're going to save the books. But we're in a world where books... Books are almost people throughout this book. Almost. They're living, they do, breathing. They the do talk to each other. Living, breathing. And they talk to each other. I mean, it's still the, you know, Nicolas Cage and National Treasure moment or whatever, or Indiana Jones moment where the artifact that we've yeah. sought for so long because we've been seeking it the whole book long, you know, it's become so important, right? And it would change history. There's, There's that sense of... Is it more worthwhile than a human life? No, but it right. is so important that the the need to put everything aside for a second to save it is is something we forgive. Well, it's a nice like moment of connection too, because that's that's something that's been running throughout the book is the idea that these books do seem to be more valuable than human life to many of the monks, right? And so it's nice that it's sort of like the last temptation here for William, and <laughs> like he he even he too succumbs to some degree, even though I, th- I think you're right. Friedrich that it's not a full succumbing it's not like he leaves him to die when he would have otherwise not died he's gonna die but yeah yeah it's like that that pull of the mm-hmm. the lure and, and it, I mean I get it like this is the only copy of the poetics book two that exists yeah. in the world isn't that worth saving obviously we feel that we were like oh my gosh like we gotta save it isn't there a question too between them because we've been talking about uh, William's skill at reading outward signs and then deducing or inducing uh, from them. And he also reveals, of course, that it's so much luck, right, with Brunellus. Everyone's amazed that he guesses everything about that horse, but it's it's partly luck. But isn't there some point where they're discussing uh, Aristotle's poetic sequel? <laughs> and uh, he's sort of saying, well, you can write it on your own from having read Aristotle and from having read everything around Aristotle, you know what he would say about comedy. You know what he would say about laughter. And so it's important to save this book, but they are so learned and they know Aristotle that they're sort of already constructing the idea of it without having read it. This is a fully Borgesian moment, right? They're going (laughs) to, they're going to write the poetics book too, just like Aristotle wrote it. That could be echo sequel to this. (laughs) There's just a question of like how books are written and who, and the need to save that book because toward the end the the sort of metonym for the library is that collection of scraps that Adso recovers from the burned library and he says you know I I return to this all the time this sort of floral legend or anthology of sentences only that are fragments that are saved and it's like reading books in a library it's you're getting part of something. And that is all you ever get is the part, right? Which is what this book is about in a lot of ways. Um, but you, you're, the books are talking to each other, and so do you need the poetics? Of course you do, but like, you can put together parts of it without it, if that makes sense. Hmm. No, that's the optimistic way of looking at Adso's ending, although I don't know if that's if that holds. I wonder if there's some parallel here. You know, we're gonna we've already brought up the postscript a couple of times, but it is something we're kind of in conversation with throughout this episode, um, because I think it's a fascinating document about his writing of things. I was really captured in the postscript to his description of the writing process of of this book. And he says something like, he dismisses the idea, you know, it's a very common cliche of like, oh, the characters just took over and did what they wanted to do. And he says, no, like, (laughs) I planned this out. There's all this stuff going on. But what he says is, oh, there reached a point where all of the characters were behaving exactly as they needed to behave because of the world that I had set up. And because, and he spends a long time, you know, he's a medievalist originally a long time before, and he kind of comes back to it and he's 
um, fleshing out his world and he spends a long time. He figures out exactly how long it takes to walk from this is like very Joycey in here, right? He, he figures out one way to go, you know, the, the exact time it takes to go from one part of the Abbey to the other and how long our conversation would take in that and everything. But he set up this whole world and then he says, like, the characters have to, res- like, act like they would act in the context of that world. And so it is a sort of an almost an automatic writing at a certain point, as you sort of said before, Friedrich, where, where the actual passages are automatic writing. Well, the world itself, the plot becomes a sort of automatic writing because he set up these strictures and and characters have to behave in these ways and so that's reminding me of what you're saying here of like tiny little scraps can then call forth a whole world so it's almost like in a sense echo didn't actually write the whole book like echo making choices the whole time going through like john grisham or something like it's like he has these little scraps that he set up and then everything else develops naturally out of that like bacterial culture in a yogurt or something right it like spreads out from these basic scraps that he's set up and grows to something beyond something that's fully in his control echo as a writer definitely has that sort of sense of rhythm that he just talks about in that postscript also where you're carried away by the rhythm and you're carried away by your writing process because in part not like you know the characters so well although he does but because he knows the idiom of uh, medieval theology, the theological discussion, the, med- the idioms of whatever he's writing about at the time. And he talks about like writing the sex scene from Adzo's perspective as both a young man and an old man. And it's so much about pulling from memory and pulling from the text he has in front of him as he's writing from these erotic or, or you know, Song of Songs things from the period and just finding the thing that has the right rhythm. And it's, it's partly him, but it's partly his context that he's working on, not his immediate context, but his medieval context. And he says something funny in the postscript that he says he repeats from interviews that he knows the present only through the television screen, or as I have a direct knowledge of the Middle Ages because he knows their books. <laughs> Just as William says, when you're, you're at the, at, when you're at the monastery, you need to know the books because they live in books Uh, and his writing process speaks to that that it's about his like recall of these medieval texts that he's been reading his whole life and they start sort of not quite because we don't want to say that but like almost self-reproducing from him through him in some way can we turn our attention then to to the main book that's on on trial here so to speak which is the second book of the poetics and just think a little bit more about not the book itself of course because that doesn't actually exist although i think this is like a true rumor that like people thought that this book might exist somewhere but it's never been discovered but to to think about maybe the the place of comedy in this book and and what it's doing here because this is in the end something that jorge abergos is is terrified of right is the idea that people will be laughing They'll be making mockery, essentially, of the faith. And that's why he doesn't want them. He, he hates all these books that inspire, you know, the illustrators to make these, you know, farting people in the margins and things like that. Like, he, he wants to eliminate that. He wants to get rid of it because he thinks he's sort of purifying what's going on. And and William has this response to, that, to, to Jorge as they're sitting there in the library. And I think it's a really quite profound one in some ways. And this is what he says to Jorge because Jorge says he's like getting rid of the devil, essentially, right? Because the devil is matter, the devil is the body, right? This sort of thing. And this is what this is what William says. He says, They lied to you. The devil is not the prince of matter. The devil is the arrogance of the spirit. Faith without smile. Truth that is never seized by doubt. The devil is grim because he knows where he is going. And in moving, he always returns whence he came. And I think that's really fascinating for for a couple of reasons. One is there's this recognition, which I think is true, sort of theologically speaking, traditionally thinking about Satan and like, what's his deal? What's his problem, right? Part of what's going on is he's going to continue to be damned because he cannot envision any other existence, right? He has this strong sense of determination, like a hard determinism in his mind about what's going on he he thinks he sees the end from the beginning and so he's unable to move in that same way to have i mean he he has free will but he he seems to be trapped inside of his own brain because he doesn't seem to recognize it and that's sort of what he's can trying to convince humans of as he prowls about the world but the other part of that that's really striking to me is just this idea that 
a faith without a smile or laughter or or this faith without a, a seed of sort of doubt in it is ultimately something that's not sustainable. It's going to burn out. And I think that's a really fascinating insight into, you know, what's the difference between like sincere religious belief and then like over the top zealotry or something like that. It's that, I think that that's, that's, that's pretty true. Like there's always this counter movement of uh, a shade of doubt that's thrown in there that then actually enriches that practice. And of course, you know, sort of, I'm speaking here as Soren Rearguard, but you know, this is something that Kierkegaard is very tapped into is the idea that those moments of doubt are, are prime movers in the life of faith. And in the same way, like laughter itself, which is, you know, you could see as a form of doubt is actually an activator. It's not a depressor of faith. It's an activator of faith. So I'm wondering what you all make of those, those things. It's interesting to think about laughter and faith and, and faith and doubt on a sort of necessary continuum for there to be a sort of sincerity or genuine quality to religious belief or sustained religious belief. And I'm trying to, I I really think that there is a duality to the text in the sense that Echo's villainy in Jorge is, you know, something he gives a lot of time to. And on the the level of his ideas too he's he's trying to take it very seriously not as you know the a clear foil that um oh at the end we obviously side against him with william and so i'm trying to think kind of through how jorge responds to that which is a sense that maybe a trifle of laughter here and there is sort of worthwhile and of course you know people are human and sin is kind of an indelible aspect of people so we have to forgive it we can't just expect perfection of everybody all the time but nevertheless you can't glide over the fact that it it moves beyond doubt to laugh at the holy in some way and if oneself is being laughed at as a pilgrim on the way to the holy or something like that this is too far you know that that is a, a very serious error not just sort of rhetorically or logically but spiritually in some way to laugh at yourself on the way towards god is to fall you know fall in the way that satan fell or something he's trying to play that out so that william sees it the way that he sees it and will react in the same way he really thinks that william will be convinced by his claims there and i and i mean like beckett and others have kind of similar thoughts in the sense that like sometimes there is nothing more cruel than being laughed at and, you know, it's it's almost worse to be laughed at and mocked than physically struck or something, as long as this isn't like a mortally perilous situation or something. Because you're just, your entire sort of self-worth has been denied by somebody in this kind of absolute dismissal. Um, you're not even worth thinking about. You're this, this asp- you're to be ridiculed. And I think he's worried that if the philosopher Aristotle tells us how to laugh and where to laugh and to connect to meaning and a meaning of life through laughter, as opposed to a dour sort of um, veil of tears sense of the world uh, and through tragedy and through an acceptance of one's loss in a sort of piety without laughter, um, I think that that's kind of an interesting claim that might be too far to laugh at yourself there because then one switches out of the place of the holy something that is something only risible right and then only sort of uh an echo chamber in some way so i just think it's a pretty interesting idea i don't know if that counters what you said or agrees with it um it's kind of a tangent but i feel like i'm listening to william and soren and and god <laughs> Carl, you're embodying Jorge of Burgos in some way. <laughs> <laughs> that's not fair. I'm, I'm teasing, but um, no, that's okay. I, I don't know. <laughs> I do think of Carl. You're you are the serious one, you know. And uh, I mean, I laugh. Soren I mean, is yeah. the the laughing Buddha or something. You, <laughs> well, you in, always in, find humor in things. Um, so I'm thinking of like um, Melville's Clarel, which is like an extremely long poem that's not great, but. In, in the Melvillian <laughs> sense, he he really sides with Jorge of 
of Burhos and in the similar kind of thing, uh, mm. a theology student goes to the Holy land and kind of tours around, um, in this long epic poem. And there's a priest who goes with him, Derwent, and he's always happy. And anytime that Clarell says, you know, what about the horrors of the world? What about all of the atrocity? How can we still be charitable and choose love? in the face of horror, in the face of the world, in the face of catastrophe. And Derwin is just kind of um, like, well, I don't know. I don't really dwell on that kind of stuff. You know, there's always a silver (laughs) lining to everything. And Melville thinks that like, it's very dark that we would laugh at Derwin. You know, it's um, Mm -hmm. the, the laughter we have is at him, you know, and it's uh, because laughter is very meek. It's very, unable to get us some kind of satisfaction and so it's just a totally different way out of this puzzle but i do think you know to counter myself i do think that the other side makes a lot of sense and i'm I'm kind of glad that it wins out in some way at least with jorge being burned up or or jorge laughs right yeah and he does and that's that's a crucial you know moment where he kind of capitulates in some way there a way a way into thinking about this for me is you brought a Melville. I, I was thinking of Larkin's church going, which did we come up on church going last season or did we talk about a different Larkin poem in some way? It came up. Larkin, Larkin has appeared perhaps once in the bastard sons of Hegel multiverse in church going. He starts with that ironic, sarcastic point of view when he's entering the church and he's kind of letting the door thud shut and going up and playing with the stuff on the altar and kind of joking around. And then, gets more and more serious as he begins to think about like what is the purpose of a building like this it holds meaning and even after it's completely been gutted out like the abbey in this book it will perhaps still hold meaning and he says it will hold meaning for someone who has like a hunger in themselves to be more serious or it's about being serious right and then he kind of retracts from that position a little bit and says a serious house on serious earth which is for me that repetition is a little like retreat to irony again or a little distancing from his engagement with seriousness but i think there's a what what carl's been talking about this laughing at thing it, it reminds me of that because there's a sort of distinction being made by william when he's speculating about the book and what might be in it between laughter that's sort of directed at a person which is important in this because it's it will o- overturn the order of things or whatever politically and and religiously and then there's a laughter that he doesn't talk about, but it's couched in irony, like Larkin at the beginning of that poem. It's coming from a sort of above, above this position, right? I'm above this and I can laugh at it. And then there's the laughter of witty riddles and unexpected metaphors, as William says, though it tells us things differently from the way they are as if it were lying, it actually obliges us to examine them more closely. And it makes us say, ah, this is just how things are. And I didn't know it. And that to me is getting at the type of laughter. I think that William himself I don't know, lets out in this book. It's when he sort of has a eureka little realization, aha moment, um, that that part of what's valuable about laughter is that it's forcing you to attend more closely to things because if you're just serious, you're unquestioning and you're not doubting. And so as Soren was saying, those moments of doubt are inviting you to reconsider. And I think that's part of what William finds so valuable, whereas Jorge is seeing it as the thing that threatens to overturn order as opposed to get you to pay attention to orders. And, and Jorge, Jorge brings that up because he says he hates the institution of like the carnival, right, in, mm-hmm. in medieval society, which is this day where everybody just sort of goes nuts, like the purge, but not terrible. And like <laughs> they come back and you know, there's some places, I love these these ones, there's some places in Europe where it's like a bo- they let a little boy become the bishop for the day, right? And it's just like, woo! And then it's like a, you know, and, and of course this is something that like Charles Taylor talks about is, sort of a release valve for society and it's useful to have those those times where you sort of step away and then you come back and it's not a it's not an overthrowing it's not a toppling but it is a a renewal in some sense um yeah i like that a lot i think that's a that's a a valuable way of thinking about it and jorge is also like the carnival i hate but it has its place Mm -hmm. because it's one day or it's one week whatever it is and it's restricted but aristotle is threatening to elevate that to an actual way of like looking at things and that's what he wants to stop the extension of the carnival into the real into the real world of thinking or something like that yeah well we get a little excerpt of the the 
amazing book and it talks about comedy and how it works in inspiring the pleasure of the ridiculous it arrives at the purification of that passion and purifying passions is not the realm of comedy for jorge i wonder if you either of you think that has been affected or if echo is saying um here's this little glimpse at the second book of the poetics and i include this in order to say jorge was you know wrong to kind of perpetuate these murders and orchestrate this plot but this has come to pass or do you think echo is saying it remains out there and i'll make a kind of crazy connection which is like people say like at the oscars the comedy movie never has a chance you know because it's the tragedies that people go to and that's where aristotelian catharsis happens that's what we need in narrative is a certain catharsis and empathy and connection with characters are mere neurons fire and we connect in some way um and that's kind of the beauty of narrative um and mimesis but to purify passions through a kind of laughing at is not really something that rises to high art or the kind of highest art of a culture in some way i wonder if you think that that hasn't happened or it kind of has obviously happened well i think that's a really fascinating like i, I did love that part of that section in echo and, and he's he's he doesn't come out and say this but in his presentation of what that what is in that book he's essentially arguing for a comedy as catharsis as a sort of mirror image of the catharsis of the tragic that happens in the actual book of the poetics that we have where Aristotle talks about that as a purgation of emotion. And I think that's a fascinating idea. Like, what what's more purgative than than laughing, maybe other than, like, belching or something, right? Like, it's like this, it's like this <laughs> getting out of your system of something. I think even more noticeably than something like tragic crying or something like that. Like, there's this, like, absolutely this purgative element. I don't know. I think that we've, like, I think in some ways lost a sense of the comic as that having that purgative element, I think we don't really know what to do with it. We don't know what, we don't have a very well-defined sense of what comedy's place in society is. It's almost like comedy has become an escape from society, but not an integrated part of society like tragedy might be. Or we've kind of come up with, sorry, these sort of like half-baked theories about it, like comedy is about wrenching social power away from whatever, like punching up or punching down or um, et cetera, which is just about the dullest thing I could imagine. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I'm sore in rear guard, but you know, but, but, but what's lost there is like the sense of in which comedy might be about preserving order rather than overthrowing it, but, but also purging and purifying what's going on. And this is making me think, you know, obviously I'm thinking back to the Greeks here because we're talking about Aristotle, but I'm thinking back to our discussion last season about Aristophanes, the clouds. And we really wrestled with, what exactly is Aristophanes saying about Socrates? He seems to be attacking him, but then he's also maybe not attacking him. Like, what's going on here? And I think part of what's confusing is that, like, it's possible to hold things up to ridicule that you still really admire and you think are worth thinking about. And but th- th- that by laughing at them, we might have a clearer sense, maybe, of what they are and what's going on with them. And so I think that that's that's a potential mode of comedy to to help purify and, and clarify what we think about any given social structure or situation through the act of laughing at it. This is a hard question, whether it's come to pass, whether it has or not. Like I agree that now we have no, we have a weak, if any theory of comedy and what it's mm-hmm. supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I mean, I can imagine this book going quite far in the sense that, you know, in classical Greek drama or whatever the, Persona is this mask through which the character speaks or the soul speaks in some way and the the thisness of a person is tragic but we don't have really an analog for that or if we do people really hate that if you offer a sort of narrative world where there are only flat characters mm-hmm. people find that you know, they want their persona. They want someone who has the ability to feel deeply in some way that isn't just risible. And so what would it really even look like a landscape of total comedy? I don't think that 
there are many works that really go for that that hard you know there are certain kind of critiques of like high postmodern books where it's just a bazillion characters and they're all funny goofy names or something and i think the clouds might be kind of interesting thing to think about with respect to that but i don't know i I don't know that it has come to pass i guess so i'm thinking about this i i one of my favorite books to teach and think about and research is memento mori by muriel spark and um it's a book in which people have been completely sort of flattened down in a lot of ways. And and what's great about it, I think, is it forces you to sort of rethink about how we view our own lives and, and our own sin. This is something that, that Spark is concerned with in the book, is the idea of sin and responsibility. And I think what her, one of her points is that when we think about our own sin, we want or, or our own responsibility, however you want to frame that, our own moral responsibility, we want to think about it in terms of tragedy, right? We want to cast ourselves as a sort of tragic hero, in some form or another, either I was justified in what I did and I'm a hero, or it's this big tragic thing. And what she's showing us throughout the book is actually like people when they're doing the wrong thing are rather absurd, right? And so it like she doesn't give us the relief of feeling like, well, I did the wrong thing, but I'm still a really brave person for whatever reason. It's like she doesn't give us that relief. It's like, no, you did the wrong thing and you're not even milton's satan or something like you're just kind of a a worm flopping around right and and you're absurd and look at you right and it's like draining and i think in a sense it like drains the power out of evil to make it look ridiculous and so that that's what came to my mind when you asked like do we have works that depict this i think they're pretty rare absolutely and and a lot of people find spark off-putting because she does not do emotion she doesn't do developed characters everything's flat right and i find it wonderful but other people hate it right to go back to the the first season of this podcast, Iris Murdoch against dryness is also in that realm of like, you are confused. You yourself, the reader are confused. The protagonist is confused and benighted and you don't understand your reality. The protagonist doesn't understand the actual nature of their reality. And it doesn't necessarily mean like, like you're saying with Muriel Spark that it has to be, it's hard ridicule um, where you're just mocking someone, but it is pressing you to have humility, which I think is maybe the, the lighter version of, of the comedy that they're talking about in this book. It's, it's a way of recognizing one's own ridiculousness as someone who, even in William's case, who has so many tools of reason he's deploying and has come so far with that to still recognize like on this great sort of theological level that you are a confused small person. It's sort of audacious in getting at that, that echoes one of the few books that he tries to insert into this is his own prose in the, in the person of Aristotle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he's not bringing in all these other people's writing, but then when it comes to Aristotle, he's like, Oh sure. I'll write a paragraph of that. <laughs> I love that audacity. Yeah. <laughs> fail big man. If you're going to fail, <laughs> try to be Aristotle and two paragraphs. Why not? <laughs> Part of it, I think, gets to a certain sense of realism. If there needs to be something analogous to the personae or personhood for comedy to talk about, and if in this understanding of this alleged second book, that would be a base and ridiculous creature whose defects and vices are what are, you know, central to it, what does that say kind of about, like, the truth of human depravity? Is there some sort of more real aspect to human depravity there for jorge it it would sort of usurp the place of like the imago dei that is in the human it's just a great sort of philosophical fist fight going on at the end i like both sides of it i don't know if i'm making any good points here well i'm funny how i mean funny like i'm a clown i amuse you i make you laugh what do you mean funny funny how how am i funny so the book ends with the last page a section which is in my edition more than one page but nevertheless adso of milk's final musings on the ruins the fragments as he returns to them and we get this final line it is cold in the scriptorium my thumb aches i leave this manuscript i do not know for whom i no longer know what it is about stat rosa pristina nomine nomina nuda tenemos And that's it. And in a book where 
there is a sort of short inscription that two monks go to and try to understand many times as a kind of secret sign that allows them access to something else. There is a clear sense that we have with us a final, we're left with a final riddle that has to be solved in some way. And so out of the Latin, you know, the ancient rose remains by its name. Naked names are all that we have. It's kind of one translation of that. And Echo is sort of hounded for, you know, the key to this from various people, right? And he doesn't give it all away, though he gives us um, a 20th century Benedictine monk. He gives us Abelard. He gives us other things that he, you know, that are going on in this quote, but I'm wondering kind of what it is for y'all. Back to Soren's original question of the name of the rose. I think that you're absolutely right to take us there, Carl, because it's a it's a wonderful sort of folding back in on itself, right? Like the last line of the book is the name of the rose, when, which gives us that feeling of solidity, like, aha, like now we've cracked it. Like why? Because oftentimes when you have a, an evocative name, like you do here with this book, you immediately wonder, like, what's going on here? Like, why, why, why this name? Why are we given this name? And he he says in the postscript, you know, he was originally going to call it something very boring, like I can't remember, it's like the murder in the abbey or something like that, or like Adzo of Milk, I think was one potential title for it, because mm-hmm. he likes, he says he likes those like very plain, yeah. boring names, and and so he ends up here with the name of the rose, and and he gives us the name of the rose in that last moment of the book, but it's in a moment of importantly a moment of refusal from Adzo, right? He's resigned his ability to any longer interpret these things. It's almost like he's just leaving it there. The name itself is being imprinted there, and it's maybe unknowable. It's like a a mystery of what's going on. And and I like it as a wrap-up to the book in part because it gives this this last word to a, a sort of refusal, which we might see as a sense of nihilism like i think it'd be easy to read this as a nihilistic ending right even william of baskerville whose methods were far beyond anybody else's in terms of their sort of skepticism adds those outdone him in skepticism um because he no longer thinks he can do anything with these fragments but in fact it seems like adzo of milk has become a sort of mystic in this moment it's like a the via negativa like the mystical refusal to, to grasp onto anything firm, but it's not a nihilism there. It's an embrace of d- divine mystery. And so I think there's something to that in the name itself. It's like, sure, the name of the rose, like, what does it mean? Well, Echo's not going to tell us, but that doesn't mean there's not a meaning there. You sort of have to let go and let God or something like that. You know, like you have to sort of let go of the firm grasp that you want to have on it. And when you do that, I think it, at the very least, it feels like the right name for the book. I don't know if I can go any farther than that, but it feels like the appro- <laughs> the appropriate name for this book is the name of the rose. It does feel more appropriate than Adso of Milk, even though I would be a, a strong defender of Adso of Milk because I also really like the title that's either enigmatic or just a person's name, especially if it's an insane name. Um, not that Adso's, but um, because he says in the postscript, it prevents you almost prevents you from having an interpretable tool to bring into the novel, right? If you ha- don't have a title. If the title is just a person's name, what can you really bring to it? Although people talk about that even with like Jane Eyre. Well, it's not Jane Rochester, it's Jane Eyre. Mrs. Dalloway, it's Mrs. Dalloway. It's not Clarissa Dalloway, right? Like there are all these examples how even those name titles... Perm- and he's, he kind of has that caveat as well. I like it as an ending because he, he has a, a moment that kind of prefigures it a little bit when Adso is lamenting his his lover um she's gonna go be burned and william says multiple times like she's burnt flesh she's dead it's you know there's nothing you can do about this and he goes to his room and bursts shamefully into sobs and then he uh he chews on his palate that he sleeps on because he says i was not even allowed as they did in the romances that he reads to lament and call out the beloved's name this was the only earthly love of my life and i could not then or ever after call that love by name i think that moment and we, when we return to it after this ending, we only have bare names. We only have naked names. It's a romantic gesture in a lot of ways mm-hmm. to say, well, I, I did have that one connection to someone on this earth and I don't have it. William and I had this connection looking at signs, reading signs, and that's gone as well. The library is gone. 
to me, there's something highly romantic, but I don't have a, an interpretation beyond that either. But this idea that we only have names, it's still important to have the name as opposed to nothing. I'm tempted to go overboard here and think back to the original cipher, primum et septimum de quator, um, that they take so long to figure out, right? The first and seventh of the four. And in the first, you know, before the comma, there are four words. And the seventh of the four is is right after that. I don't know. It feels like he's playing another game with us. Does that make sense? That there is some trick that we ought to try and unlock in this final phrase. And I think stat Roma is something that is a different Latin phrase. So the name of the rose, the name of Rome, and thinking about this lost place that's off the map now uh, that we have a map for. I think I get the sense that William had that there's something right outside of my grasp that's I'm being led to with uh, this kind of cipher at the end. Do you think that that's what he wants you to just have it out of your grasp? Or do you think there's something to be grasped that you're like, you have to still solve? Oh, I think Echo is a semiotician. I feel like he would love it if somebody went hard to try and find out some kind of real cipher here. And I think maybe he did put one in. This is so Carl. That's, I love it. This reminds me. So there's, this is like the best thing you could possibly do if you want people to yeah. endlessly think about and discuss your work. I, I, I think about the, um, the wonderful piece, a symphonic metamorphosis by uh, Paul Hindemith in which he claimed that there was a particular tune that runs through the whole thing. And I think, I think um, Edward Elgar's Enigma variations, he says the same thing, which we know what the tune is there, but He's like, yeah, it's in all the movements of this piece. Figure it out. And everybody's like, all these music theory people are like frantically trying to, right, like Charlie at the at the cork board, right, trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> and they can't do it. It's like an uncrackable code in some senses. But then it, it like it, it, that itself, that very act of doing that, like spurs a lot of thinking and mulling over what's going on. And so it's almost like, I, I like that, that idea, Carl, maybe insofar as I think Echo likes the idea of people generating meanings out of it, even if, even if there's maybe not one. You you want there to be a code there, maybe so. You want there to be one. <laughs> he's holding there on to that. You're like, yeah, you're like he's gonna find it. Treasure, like he says in the postscript, like it's overdetermined. The rose, it's got too many reference reference points, and so everyone's gonna throw up their hands and be like, well, there's not really a meaning. But Carl's the Nicholas Cage is gonna be like, no, no, no. The 180 years of searching, and I'm three feet away. Of all the ideas that became the United States, there's a line here that's at the heart of all the others. People don't talk that way anymore. Beautiful. Huh. No idea what you said. It means if there's something wrong, those who have the ability to take action have the responsibility to take action. I'm going to steal it. What? And if we open it up, we find out that he found Poetics 2 somewhere. No, I wouldn't go that far. But I mean, (laughs) I don't know. I'm interested in puzzles and ciphers like that. But I don't necessarily think that would be some amazing truth that isn't discoverable on the metaphorical level in some way. I think what's I was going to touch on the the via negativa and the, the mysticism and and apophasis in some way as incredibly important to how meaning works for somebody like Echo. And that aligns with things like the wild allusion to Wittgenstein's ladder that comes at the end of the book. Um, and it's just blatantly a chronological and he doesn't care. Echo here <laughs> really shows his hand and, you know, I want to just reference Wittgenstein's ladder. So I will. And in this final line, I get that takeaway. If, if there's a meaning that I had to pinpoint there, it's, you know, that like naming is not being, and we just have to therefore not enervate naming, but actually raise it even higher. That's all we get is naming. And so that's why the name of the rose is name. If that makes sense, not any specific name. Active naming is kind of the way that meaning holds for us. If I can just briefly return us before we wrap up here to to one 
final point that stuck out to me in this section, going back to our previous discussions about maybe about unity and variety. And there's this wonderful moment. It doesn't have anything really to do with the plot, but it's one of those wonderful moments of, we might call it like local flavor that Echo's giving us of the Middle Ages, which is this moment where, it actually happens a couple times quickly in a row, where Adzo goes into the church and he hears the monks singing. And I was thinking about this as a wonderful sort of instantiation of this idea of unity and variety being brought together. And, and it's a great moment in part because, of course, if there's one thing that people know about monks, it's Gregorian chant, right? It's it, That's like the sort of standout <laughs> thing about them. And he brings us to this moment where the monks are singing. And in, in particular, the first time it happens, they're singing this, this psalm, I believe. And it's like, the princes are departing. And it's like, it's when Bernard of Gouy is like leaving the abbey and everybody's like, don't let the door hit you on the ass of the way out. And so this is, this is how Echo's describing it from Adzo. Um, it's this wonderful moment. He says, On the first syllable, a slow and solemn chorus began. Dozens and dozens of voices whose bass sound filled the naves and floated over our heads and yet seemed to rise from the heart of the earth. Nor did it break off, because as other voices began to weave over that deep and continuing line, a series of vocalices and melismas, it, telluric, continued to dominate and did not cease for the whole time that it took a speaker to repeat twelve Ave Marias in a slow and cadenced voice. And, as if released from every fear by the confidence that the prolonged syllable, allegory of the duration of eternity, gave to those praying, the other voices, and especially the novices, on that rock-solid base raised cusps, columns, pinnacles of liquescent and underscored nuamai. I think that's a really fascinating depiction of the chant happening. And again, you, you have that depiction of unity and variety being woven together. There's that solid single line that's running through everything. But on top of that, they're building an edifice of sound. And he says it's an allegory of eternity being joined in that song. And I wonder what you all make of that. We don't have a, it's not like there's a huge role for music in this book, but we are, it's sort of woven into the background, of course, because we have these, we built the, the very structure of the book is the prayers of the day. But what we have to remember, of course, is that the monks aren't like, they're not sitting there praying, they're singing the prayers, right? And so I, I wonder what you all make of the way that Echo is approaching music here. He almost seems to think it has, Adzo seems to think that there's something set apart about music, that music can achieve something that these other aspects of life in the Abbey can't do somehow. I'm wondering what you all think about the way that the, or the vision that's being presented here of music being an avenue towards some somehow touching the divine or eternity or, or a greater sense of community as well in that. I mean, one thing I like about it is, I mean, it, it pairs well with that vision of the door that Adso has where he's then struck by the, the beauty of it and is imagining the sort of terrible divine order of heaven as they all sing their praises for eternity. This one's, you know, it's much more human and much more ordinary in, in some ways, but it's made rapturous by his writing, which is great. And it connects to this moment also in the postscript where he talks about rubato and people's writing. And he says, you know, you have to have a sense of rhythm. I think I mentioned earlier as a writer and too much rubato is going to spoil it. You can use it, but it's like people who play Chopin and they think that the best way to do it is just to slow and, and speed up on their own whenever they want. And it ruins it. And in, as you said here, this is a moment of community coming together and producing something that's highly ordered and yet has all of these. No, no one is, you know, you can't step away from the rhythm on your own in this moment because you're part of the chant. You're part of this highly ordered music. And it's a moment where like things make sense because of that. I, I don't have much beyond that other than to say it's a moment where you're sort of as an individual lost in the collective and that that sense of humility and sense of giving yourself over to that, like in comedy, having humility, it creates something higher than yourself, right? And it's one of the few moments in the book where I feel like, along with his lovemaking, where he sort of is lost in something and lost in a way that's, oh, it's a little transcendent. Yeah, I was going to say it reminds me of other transcendent moments in the book, like his the freeze or the 
visual art that he sees in mm-hmm. in the beginning and kind of has this like ecstatic moment and then like his dream or vision that is also just kind of a transcendent leaving of time and place for a moment but i wonder if soren reads them differently i feel like we have this like long battle over the sort of the plastic arts or the visual arts which i'm more a fan of and the, you know music and the the Patreon sense of music as the ultimate art right it's more your your mode I, I think that i think that's a a very good way to frame it carl um the debate never ends i, I was thinking about it almost in the context of you know thinking back obviously this is a book about book culture it's manuscript culture it's not quite printed book culture but it's book culture in a very real and important way and echo is almost offering us this alternate view which is an oral culture and i think he's hinting somehow at the fact that the oral transmission of these psalms is maybe a more i don't know i don't want to say it's a more pure but it's like a more communal act than the act of writing down in the manuscript because that causes division whereas this causes a sense of unity together and also maybe to make one final plug against the plastic arts you know what is not burned down when the abbey burns down their voices right that lasts that can continue it doesn't burn like but they are dispersed they do disperse but they can but they, right the the, the 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 things that last in the community are not ultimately those edifices or the books in the library it's right it's the the voices that are reaching out into eternity so that's maybe a little flowery for you but a little florid jelly but and they have to be you. taken up anew by the next voice right they have to be I taken mean, up like anew was, yeah. there's a transmission that's happening but it's an active and a living transmission in a way that the books want to imitate but can't quite get to and, and that makes me think you know of course about going back to the old argument back to Socrates about whether writing was in fact itself a mistake. And it's almost like, and I don't think Echo thinks that obviously, but there's almost a little nudge in that direction. Like, do we really need this obsession with the written word? And and obviously we, we do in this podcast. We, otherwise we don't have a podcast. What's the point? You don't want to hear us try to sing Gregorian chant, but he's almost sort of posing that question in a playful way is like, what do we gain when we move away from that maybe or what's lost you know i mean there's still you know you can read it both ways the debate never ends and of course literature hangs in the balance i think in some ways between music and the plastic arts right certainly in the in the time of this novel there is a real carnal aspect to writing you know a manuscript is a physical labor that you're very connected to when you're writing and the fragments, the scraps of this writing are more real to people than they are now, where it's a book, which to you may be a file on a computer or a thing in your hand, right? Or an audio file. Yeah, nevertheless, I mean, is it like Glenn Gould or somebody who was like horrified by the fact that to play Beethoven was to like incarnate music with his grotesque hands on the keys or something and then there's someone like john cage who you know music is the clunking of stuff that is what music music is plastic right so you can run it both ways i agree the debate never ends and certainly our debate never ends but we are going to have to we are going to have to cut it off for the moment. Thank you all. This has been a, a really rich episode. You know, we since we didn't split it into four parts, I felt like we had a lot to get to today. Uh, but it's been it's been a real pleasure talking about this book with both of you and uh, with listeners who are listening along with us at home. Thanks for being here on this journey with us. We are going to now move into the next section of our season, um, part two monks so we're picking up this you know kind of the big obvious setting theme of this book the 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 monastery community and uh just a quick rundown so our next episode uh, is friedrich's first pick of the season it's Hermann hesse's narcissus and goldman we're going to be situated still in the middle ages but with a a different take on them for sure Um, after that we're going to move to my first pick of the season which is uh, walter m miller jr's a canticle for Leibowitz, which is Monks. In space. Um, or at least the future. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll move finally after that to, to Carl's first pick of the season, which is Yukio Mishima's 
the Temple of the Golden Pavilion, which is going to take us in a new direction with monks into um, the Buddhist monastery. So we're excited for all of those things that will be coming at you subsequently in the next few weeks. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for those things. But until that point, until our next episode, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out. <laughs>